call it. Call it, yes. For what? Just call it. Welcome to Call It Friendo, the podcast where usually two friends watch a film decided by the flip of a coin. We're on hiatus from regular episodes at the moment. We'll be back in September with those. So this week, myself and DJ Richie and my co-host Donica Tiernan watched a bunch of stuff that we'll be talking about separately. Follow us at Call It Friendo Podcast on Instagram to keep up to date with the latest happenings. And drop us a line if you have any recommendations. Kisses. Andy, Andy, Andy. Andy, 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 Andy. So this week I watched three whole things. Can you believe it? I've got two films and a TV miniseries. First up is Val. Hi, my name's Val. I don't do this with every interview I go on. Take you inside my home. I don't. But I'm going to. My name is Val Kilmer. Val is a 2021 documentary about the life of actor Val Kilmer, pieced together from hundreds of hours of home movies. It turns out that Val Kilmer basically had a video camera in his hand from about 12 years old and just recorded every single interaction in his life. It must have been incredibly frustrating for all the people who met him. He was that twat who just had a video camera the entire time, like in Chronicle, in the film Chronicle that I watched last week again. The character is just one of them is just walking around with a video camera the entire time in his school, videotaping everything, literally everything. And that must be quite annoying. But Val Kilmer did it and he turned out okay, so maybe it's fine. First things first, if you haven't seen Val Kilmer in the last few years, you will be shocked when watching this film because Kilmer was diagnosed with throat cancer in 2015. He underwent chemotherapy and two tracheotomies, two tracheotomies, leaving him with a raspy voice, which happens to me sometimes. Not that I'm comparing, not that I'm comparing my struggles with Val Kilmer's throat cancer. And uh, yeah, ultimately he needed, he now needs to eat using a feeding tube, which is not ideal, I would say. That's not the best. But that's probably not even the hardest part of the documentary. And Kilmer talks about some of the misfortunes suffered by his family throughout his life. And it gets fairly grim in places with getting screwed over, people dying, that type of that type of thing. But, you know, it's Hollywood. It's L.A., baby. That's how this works. However, on the bright side, the vast majority of the film is celebrating Kilmer's Hollywood roles, his other artistic endeavors, and his love for his children. Kilmer's son, Jack, uh, provides the voiceover for the film, which is just as well because, and this is hard, this is bad to say, but when you listen to Val Kilmer speak, even for 30 seconds, you're like, okay, Val, please stop speaking. And that's a horrific thing. And that's a terrible thing that we all must admit that Val Kilmer, to even listen to him speak now for a second, you're like, okay, Val. Put the microphone down. And listen, this is me with a raspy voice who's saying this. You know, maybe you listen to me and you're like, oh, maybe you should stop talking. Well, I'm not going to. Okay. So take that elsewhere. I don't need that. I don't need that energy in my half of the podcast. There's some great behind the scenes footage from an early play he did with Sean Penn and Kevin Bacon. And uh, him and a bunch of the other Top Gun lads in homoerotic drinking parties. They, uh, he talks a little bit about on Top Gun how they split the set in half. So 
Tom Cruise and Anthony Edwards and, and his guys were all together and then Val Kilmer and all the baddies were all together doing all topless drinking and doing shots off of each other's abs, that kind of thing, you know. It's what we it's what I'd hope Hollywood parties are like. Also we see him chilling with a morbidly obese Marlon Brando pushing him on a a kind of hammock thing, which again, that's if I had to picture Marlon Brando it, it's either, you know, sitting... It, it's mainly he's morbidly obese. Okay, he's a godfather, but mostly I think of him as a fatty, and that's what he is here. Yeah, also, that's on the set of The Island of Dr. Moreau, which was a, a situation where Kilmer... Kilmer didn't perhaps behave the best throughout the making of that film, and, and Kilmer's career has been plagued by accusations that he's hard to work with. And he makes some acknowledgement of the times he's fucked up, but I guess ultimately in this documentary, unsurprising as it's you know created by him, but he comes across as a perfectionist who constantly wants to, to make the best art that he can. And uh, he's an artist in multiple mediums. He opened uh, an art gallery in, in Los Angeles and we get to see him doing some of his paintings and they're good. I think I don't know anything about art. I don't know if you can accuse a biographical documentary of self-indulgence, but the film does kind of overstay its welcome a little. It runs about 107 minutes after 90 minutes. You're like, okay, Val. Okay, Val, we get it. But you know, it's home It's home videos. If you like watching home movies of people, then there you go. This is what this is. Uh, overall, it's an interesting insight into the life and career of a talented and naturally funny actor. I mean, kiss, kiss, bang, bang. I might go and watch that right now. I have respect for Mr. Kilmer after the bad things I've said about his cancer-ridden voice. You can find this one on Amazon Prime. Next up, I watched The Empty Man. On last week's podcast, Donica asked me about films which you should go into blind, as in not knowing anything about them. As a not, I don't mean you should, you know, cover cover your eyes with some kind of piece of cloth or stab yourself with a fork in either retina. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about going into things without knowing anything about them. The Empty Man is one of those films. I'm not even going to discuss the content of this film more than to say it's a horror film, psychological horror film. It's written, edited, and directed by David Pryor. Who's David Pryor, I hear you not ask? Well, he's a protege of David Fincher. Who's David Fincher? If you don't know who David Fincher is, just to end the podcast now. David Fincher, come on. Come on, people. We need we need a certain standard to work with. So... Uh, David Pryor worked on Fincher Productions for years, doing the behind-the-scenes featurettes for films such as Panic Room, Zodiac, and The Social Network. After making a short film, AM 1200, I guess. Is that what it is? That must be a time. Oh, no, 12. AM 1200. I haven't watched it, but this is a short film he made back in 2008. Pryor eventually got the opportunity to direct his first feature-length film with 20th Century Fox, The Empty Man, which is based on a graphic novel. It was filmed in South Africa back in 2016. Under studio pressure, Pryor delivered a 137-minute cut of the film in 2017. This cut performed very poorly in test screenings. Pryor wanted to chop another six minutes from the runtime, but Fox took the film away from him and shelved it. When Fox was acquired by Disney, 
they decided to release the film and with very little fanfare, the film was released in October 2020. They also put out an extremely misleading trailer marketing the film as a kind of teen slasher, which it most definitely, I'll tell you that about content, it's not that, okay? The film came out during COVID lockdowns and grossed a fairly feeble $4 million, fairly feeble $4 million, fairly feeble $4 million. The critical response was very tepid as well, with the general consensus being meh, meh. People were not feeling it in October of 2020. The reason I watched this film was because I rewatched Seven the other week, directed by David Fincher, and was searching around for something with a similar tone to that or Denny Villeneuve's Prisoners, and I came across a discussion of The Empty Man. It's a film which has really been picking up steam of late. I believe it was recently added to Disney+. Plus. It's not where I saw it. But it's where you can find it. And uh, it's now being talked about as a modern cult classic. I don't want to raise your expectations too much. Maybe I've already maybe I've already said too much. Maybe I've ruined it. But I really like this film and I would consider watching it again pretty soon, which is extremely unusual for me. And I'd really like to discuss this film further when Donica gets around to watching it or anyone else. If you watch it get in touch. I'd be intrigued to hear what you think about it. But for now, I recommend checking it out. Don't read anything else about it. That's all you need to know. It's on Disney Plus or in Blockbuster. It's called The Empty Man. It's from 2020. Man. If you like dark psychological horror films, this may well be up your alley. David Fincher himself is a big supporter of the film. Not my words, the words of David Fincher. So there. Finally, I watched Manhunt. This is the sequel to Mouse Hunt, starring Nathan Lane and Lee Evans. It's not, but it should be. Manhunt, there's about 40 properties with the title Manhunt. I remember there was a controversial game back in the day called Manhunt. This one is a 2019 ITV police procedural miniseries of the kind that myself and Donica are both obsessed with. That preposite that should be there, shouldn't it? It stars Martin Clunes, remember him from Men Behaving Badly and that other thing that he did, as Detective Chief Inspector Colin Sutton, whose memoirs the show is based on. Sutton was the SIO or Senior Investigating Officer. Did you know that SIO means Senior Investigating Officer? I didn't, but I cunningly figured it out. Sutton was a senior investigating officer in the 2004 murder of Amélie de la Grange, a young French woman who was bludgeoned to death on Twickenham Green in London. I was reasonably well-versed in the real-life events because I enjoy looking up the Wikipedia pages of serial killers, but uh, even if you don't know how things unfold, it's a very well-made procedural of the old-fashioned room full of officers reading through massive lists to find key evidence like Lester Freeman might do in The Wire. Spoiler for real life now, okay, but the person the police eventually apprehend is serial killer Levi Belfield, who murdered a series of young girls and women, including Millie Dowler. A very, very shocking series of crimes. I don't recommend going too much in depth into those, but the actor who portrayed Belfield, Kellen Jones, is excellent at displaying his hair-trigger temperament and unbridled misogyny. Martin Clunes is also excellent as a middle management type police officer who comes under fire for his not very modern methods. It's three episodes running around 45 minutes apiece, so it's about the same as The Empty Man in total. 
A second season of the show is due later this year, which will focus on the pursuit of the Night Stalker, who was a uh, a, sort of a serial rapist who terrorized. I, do, I didn't mean to say it like that, like big up his name or something. He was a serial rapist who terrorized South London for 17 years. They caught him eventually, okay? You can find this one on BritBox, wherever the hell that is, or do what I did and go to your local blockbuster where you will find it in the police procedural section. That's all from me this week. Please hit me up if you have any recommendations, any feedback. That's my half done. I wonder what Donica's introduction music is going to be. I was born in a Dublin street where the loyal drums did beat and the loving English feet they grant so this week I watched Fede Alvarez's Don't Breathe. It's about the third time I've watched this. Um, and uh, it's in the mark of a great horror film, it still managed to get me in the same moments by the same methods. Even plot reveals are handled so grippingly that my foreknowledge of them didn't stop me, you know, just being gobsmacked by them as they came along. It's the story of three petty criminals who conspire to rob a blind veteran whose kid died on him, played by Stephen Lang. The protagonist is one of the thieves, is played by Jane Levy, who wants to use this last big score to get her younger sister away from their horrible mother to California. I mean... They really heighten the reality here in the stakes. Anybody who's looking for something kitchen sinky won't get it because it's all essentially a long way around to get into the house, which is basically a roller coaster ride. Um, I've not seen Alvarez's Evil Dead, though apparently it's great, but based solely on Don't Breed, I'd say his connections to Sam Raimi make heaps of sense. Don't Breed is gritty, thrilling, grotesque, it's funny, um, and it and it gleefully heightens its reality as it goes until fucking anything goes. Um, its sequel is in cinemas this week, I think, and were I not aboding currently in Nowhere's Backarse, I'd have seen it already. I recommend everybody check out the first one uh, as soon as you can. It's just great fun. Um, it's a good, well-meaning cousin of a um, common favorite of the podcast, Drag Me to Hell, so take that as you will. I checked out a 1952 uh, British drama film called Station Six Sahara. I heard about this film in a conversation between Edgar Wright and Quentin Tarantino about a list of British films recommended to them by one Martin Scorsese. Um, They call it a drama, but I'd call it a desert sex noir. So it's set at a desert pipeline maintenance station in the Sahara Desert at which reside a bunch of lads willfully in isolation from the world. I kind of find this world fascinating. Uh, Anyway, I remember years ago there was a guy um, who lived in a house I was living in in college for just the bare space of a month. He was coming off having done the oil rig thing for about three years and it's just that sort of willful isolation from the world and what it does to people just seems to send people cracked. Um, Anyway, so a hot lady arrives in a car in the middle of the night and each of the boys behave according to their penises. It's basically a story championing uh, championing, uh, laconicism and emasculating ego or the wages of fear without wheels, basically. It's very sexy, too. 
Um, by all accounts, for the exterior shoot, which took place in Lydia, Carol Baker, who's the sexy lady, her movements were heavily restricted on account of being too sexy, something that I could relate entirely to based on my time in Andorra. So I watched um, the British crime anthology Innocent. Um, Innocent is a four-parter created by Matthew Allridge, who's a writer of crime novels, and Chris Lang, who's best known as the creator of uh, Unforgotten, a show that it kind of shares some DNA with. It's it's the story of a man who's released from prison on a technicality relating to botched evidence. And having been uh, locked up for murdering his wife, he sets out to find the real killer whilst the police reopen the case to find better evidence to, against him. Now, it's clear from the out that he probably didn't do. We know whose side we're on. This is, you know, your basic police procedural. Um, Unforgotten is is the superior model of this, basically. It strikes very similar ground to Unforgotten. But the thing is, as well, is I just eat this shit up. British crime procedurals, I'm just there for them. They can get me very easily. Uh, This, uh, uh, given the vast amount of them, I've watched this would chart relatively low, but it's still entertaining. You get to watch them figuring stuff out. There's a grand reveal in the fourth episode that's a bit like, fuck off. Because I dislike twists that I couldn't have figured out if I was only smarter you know I like them to be hiding in plain sight and this one just wasn't but it'll get you through and the main reason I watched it um, is because apparently the second season is amazing which is a silly way to go about things considering it's an anthology show and I wouldn't need to watch the first season for continuity sake but anyway I did that's innocent I watched another uh, British crime anthology it's called The Missing You know, see what an afternoon in Chalon du Bois has to offer. Ice cream! (laughs) (laughs) My son was taken. This one treats the disappearance of a young boy while on holiday with his parents uh, from two time periods. The weeks following the disappearance and eight years later as the father, played by James Nesbitt, chases up new evidence with the case's original investigator, uh, Baptiste, played by Checky Cario, I'm going to say, in what has transpired to be his signature role given he's just starred in the second series of the subtitled spin-off, of course, uh, Baptiste. What those what this show has in common with Innocent is majorly their use of a time jump. But in The Missing, it is actually told in the two timelines. Innocent is just um, contained in the later one. It is about more so the effect that crime can have on people. Like a crime gets solved in The Missing and there is an element of mystery um, to it. But it's kind of much more about watching how people fall apart in the midst of these things like it's immediately noticeable that the couple the parents of the boy are divorced uh, years later and um, she's uh, planning on getting married to Jason Fleming who's who plays a uh, another investigator in the case but it's really all about Baptiste who's just a zen-like presence uh, on a kind of a Dale Cooper from Twin Peaks level uh, who's just kind of floating about, just trying to make people feel better. I'll tell you one thing, despite the fact that it does stretch credulity again in parts, the ending of The Missing is just a pure cracker. Now, I, I would consider these both firmly mid-tier um, British crime shows, but I'll tell you one thing, that 
drew me in slash abhorred me a bit about the missing is having become a father recently, it has diluted significantly the entertainment value of paedophiles for me. Yeah, I give me a serial killer going forward, because uh, paedophiles just got tougher to watch. I watched The Moment of Truth, which is an Italian film shot in Spain in 1965. It's an Italian film, but it's about Spain. It's about a bullfighter. It uh, may only be an Italian film for its director and the the dubbing uh, language they chose, but besides these and the relatively thin Rocky as a bullfighter storyline, this is better defined as a documentary about Spain in 1965. Hint, it wasn't at its best. They did not have tarmac. I don't think there was tarmac then. But you can see, like, landmarks. You can see the, the bull arena in Barcelona that's now a shopping centre functioning as a bull ring. You can see Montjuic, like, towering just above streets that, I don't know, they look like they're in a war zone. <laughs> uh, still, it's interesting for the time capsule uh, element. Um, and once again, I found myself torn between disgust at bullfighting and admiration for the bullfighters. Because that aspect of it is thrilling. They shot this with a real bullfighter, um, and some of the stuff they get up to, it's amazing. But then you just see all the blood flowing down the poor animal again. You know, uh, it's rough stuff. Honestly, it's a troubling comparison, but it reminded me a lot of the writer, and not just because the interactions with animals, just the fact that this guy's filming... I wish I could remember the director's name now. This guy is filming real things. These are real people doing real things. You're seeing the world of bullfighting and you're seeing Spain in 1965 and it's a really, really effective, really interesting time capsule and I would really, really recommend it. I re-watched Sergio Carbucci's Django. Now Django is the spaghetti western so far as I'm concerned, if only because Sergio Leone's became so massive. This was uh, Sergio Carbucci's first entry in his Blood and Mud trilogy. Um, even by the standard of the subgenre, this is violent, with one man forced to eat his uh, severed ear and another having his hands broken by stomping horses. It's exemplary in the comparative study of westerns and space opera because the West is nothing but a tangible setting here. The film is more set in Westworld than West America, and not just because everyone speaks Italian. Um, The main character is an anti-racist who carries a Gatling gun in a coffin. All you need to know um, is that uh, a perfect starting point to go beyond Leone, in my opinion. And there's plenty more like it beyond that, too. Last night I watched Shane Meadows' This Is England. Now I've seen This Is England a few times, I feel, and I've seen certainly the first ser- of his spin-off series, I think it's This Is England 86, is the first one where um, Eddie Marsan is a horrible rapist. Yeah, which I, I genuinely think that rape scene just disturbed me into not watching 88 and 90. But I've uh, opted to, so I decided to start with the film. And I must say, I mean, it's just terrific on so many fucking levels. I mean, the locations, for one thing, I mean, it's shot in... Yeah, we, <laughs> I don't know where they shot it, but they, it, we, it feels like Thatcherism to me, anyway. 
The dialogue is so naturalistic and funny, as are the performances. Stephen Graham just arrives like a terrifying force of nature. Uh, the soundtrack is excellent. I mean, wow, it's just... Okay, he's kind of seems to have turned over completely to TV now, which, I mean, actually fair enough, to be honest, because he seems to have carried his style completely over and just is making longer movies segmented into different parts. I urge everybody to check out The Virtues, which he did also with Stephen Graham. came out a couple of years ago now, I think, um, which is just, just terrific, but... Going back to This Is England, with fresh eyes, it must be 10 years since I've seen it, I was really, really blown away by it. It's an excellent film. It's um, Thatcher neorealism or something or other, but wow, I had a good time with it. And I recommend checking that out again. I also, I'm just a little bit, well, three episodes out of six, into Ashling Bay's series, This Way Up. She plays... Um, well, she plays the lead character. I can't remember her name now, the lead character's name, but she just gets out of a mental institution, having had a nervous breakdown. No, it's actually a rehab facility collected by her friend Sharon Horgan, and it's just about her trying to readjust. And uh, it's yet another one of these successful dramedies. Uh, I really enjoyed um, Feel Good. I really enjoyed Fleabag. Um, I really enjoyed I May Destroy You, not as much as a lot of people, but I did really enjoy it. And um, Catastrophe, which I watched this year as well, which I was a big fan of. Um, this, I'd not just for the presence of Sharon Horgan, but I'd place this um, safely next to Catastrophe, just in terms of its sense of humour and its tone. Again, it's just like real situations which you care about, but it, the people are funny. They're funny people. It's not writers trying for gags. They come across as fully fleshed out characters, that are funny, that happen to be funny as well in, in the middle of this story. Uh, like, each episode is 20 minutes, which, you know, I mean, five stars for that. But, um, yeah, I'd really, really recommend getting into this. Uh, the second series just came out, and apparently there will be a third. I genuinely, out of everything I watched this week, except for maybe um, except for maybe This Is England, I think this is what I got the most out of. And you can track it down on Amazon Prime, I think. Really, really well worth checking out. Well, we need to know what we're calling it for here. You need to call it. I can't call it for you. Well, it wouldn't be fair. I didn't put nothing up. Yes, you did. You've been putting it up your whole life. You just didn't know it.